We are continuing with the reading of excerpts from the book Legendary Lake Pond Array by Jane Fritz and Friends, and read by Jane Fritz. Area 2, Garfield Bay, southwest to Tlatchy Landing, northeast to Anderson Point. Overview. When you come driving into Garfield Bay on a sunny summer day, it feels like you are descending into a small fishing village on a sea coast that time has forgotten. The open cove with its marina, boats, and rustic homes is idyllic. The bay with its campground facilities, adjacent beaches, private marina, and restaurants makes it the ideal family destination. Further along gravel roads, you'll reach Green Bay and the Mineral Point area, forest service lands. The Mineral Point Trail opens to fantastic views of Lake Ponderay, looking across the lake toward the Green Monarchs. Green Bay has primitive campsites with picnic tables and fire rings. Garfield Bay is also well protected for canoeing and kayaking, although as you round the point toward the beautiful cobble beaches of Green Bay, the lake can get choppy. From the lake's eastern shore, Sailors, power boaters, and fishermen come to this area from Sunnyside, Hope, and even Clark Fork, while other adventure seekers explore the distance around the Sagal Peninsula from Sandpoint to Bottle Bay and around Anderson Point. Coming by boat from that direction takes you past a number of lovely bays and privately owned points of land. Sunrise Bay, Martin Bay, Glengarry Bay, Picard Point, Elliott Bay, and Camp Bay. There are a few houses along this shoreline and a medieval-like wall that has been constructed across a high bluff. Because of the steep western slope, the shoreline is heavily timbered and dark. The Kalispell Indians traditionally hunted bear and fished while camped on this peninsula. Some of the most beautiful and popular public recreational attractions on Lake Ponderay are in this area. Anecdota, Love and the Lake Sandpoint is a nice town, but it's Lake Ponderay that pulls on people, says Eileen Clatt, an artist who grew up in a large family with nine siblings at the water's edge on Garfield Bay. There were few houses back then, mostly small vacation cabins tucked back into the woods, home to weekend visitors from Spokane. Garfield Bay was in its heyday as a resort community in the late 1950s and early 60s when commercial fishing for kokanee salmon allowed a catch of up to 250 fish a day. Life was full and abundant. Summer mornings we were sent out to weed the vegetable garden, says Eileen, but we didn't get far into it before our mom would let us go swimming. When not on the beach, she and her siblings would either be fishing off the docks, following creeks up into the woods, or picnicking on the shore of one of the many coves between Garfield and Green Bays. Their mom didn't drive a car, and so trips into Sandpoint were few, but there was always plenty of gas for the motor of their boat. So until they all got driver's licenses to take them to town, she and her siblings hung out together, and took turns driving the boat. They went water skiing or explored other parts of the lake, the Green Monarchs, Talachi Landing, 
Green Bay, and Glengarry Bay. There is more than one side to living on the lake, says Eileen. For all its good times, there were also difficulties and dangers. She remembers their boat coming loose from its mooring and running aground more than once. Tragedy struck when her youngest brother drowned in the lake, slipping from the dock during high water. But despite her brother's death, she and her siblings were allowed the freedom to be out on the lake. Her connection with the lake's magic, its vastness and its special places, and even the life cycle of the kokanee salmon, all contributed to the development of an aesthetic and her strong affinity for water. Lake Ponderay has always been her standard for measuring beauty. No other place could ever measure up to the sheer beauty of this place, she says. It casts a spell. It's not so surprising, then, that her professional life is as a watercolor artist, a painter of fish. Fish have always been a part of my life, Eileen says. She remembers catching them when she was as young as seven years old. The kokanee were especially interesting to her, how they would change in color from silver or blue-backed in summer to red or rusty during the autumn spawning. When the fishermen stopped bringing boatloads of kokanee to the Garfield Bay dock, she realized that somehow the fish were in danger. Once the Albany Falls Dam went in and the lake was drawn down in the fall, she would walk along the shore and see so many kokanee left high and dry at the mouths of tributaries. What Eileen didn't fully grasp then was how man was disrupting the life cycle of the fish by changing its spawning habitat. Eileen now lives overlooking the lake in the town of Hope. She painted her first fish, a perch that her husband caught, in 1985. A series of paintings and prints of trout soon followed. Today, her favorite subjects to paint are salmon, especially those species that are endangered. A collection of her watercolors called A Litany of Salmon has been exhibited in major galleries in the region. Their life cycle is a beautiful embodiment of our soul's journey in life, says Eileen. How we are born into the world, emerge and go out into the world, and we are called to return to our true nature, our inner origin our source of life. Salmon do that so beautifully with their beauty and persistence. They receive a call to come home with the precious elixir to give to the beings left. It is a heroic journey. For Eileen Klatt, this parallel journey of human and fish life, death and new life, was learned from this remarkable body of water, Lake Ponderay. Wildlife Viewing Nesting Osprey at Lost Lake. A pair of osprey has chosen a giant ponderosa pine snag for their nesting site next to Lost Lake, a resident migratory raptor that eats fish. The osprey is common to the Lake Ponderay area and lives here between April and September. Because of habitat loss, they will often use bridges, even very noisy ones, man-made platforms and utility poles for places to nest. But in the wild, they like big snags close to water or very tall conifers whose tops have died out. The adult birds need perches close to their nest to guard the eggs and nestlings from predators such as ravens and eagles. 
if they survive their winter in Central America and subsequent long spring migration north, the adult pair will return to the same nest year after year to breed and raise their young. The osprey offspring, when mature enough for breeding, will also return to their home habitat and build their nests in the forest neighborhood, relatively close to their parents. One of the most exhilarating wildlife viewing experiences a person can enjoy is seeing an osprey dive into the water with a violent splash, completely immersed, and then ascend with heavy wet wings and a fish in its talons to feed itself and its brood. Lower Along the Shore, Talachi Lodge by Marianne Love Harlan and Margaret Walker could be considered resort pioneers and extraordinary promoters of Lake Ponderay. Along with Ruth and Wayne Anderson, the Walkers turned 800 acres of the old Talachi mining community into a thriving fishing lodge. During its heyday from 1948 to 1962, celebrities like Bing Crosby, Lon Chaney, Phil Harris, and Adlai Stevenson stayed at the Talachi Lodge. Along with the Walkers' famous hospitality, steak dinners, and sumptuous breakfasts, the main attraction for guests was the opportunity to catch a Kamloops rainbow lunker. When lodge guests caught a big fish, Harlan would cook it for them. The Walkers purchased the property in 1947, and along with the land came 63 buildings remaining from silver mining days in Talachi. Some of the employees of the lodge lived in the old village site. Harlan, a former Farragut naval recruit, was drawn back to the area after hearing stories about the world record Kamloops Gerard Rainbow Trout. Even though at first his wife Margaret took some convincing, she eventually came to love the area. Harlan took visitors to a spot on the lake beneath the Green Monarchs, where they would fish from Granite Creek to Dead Man Point, and then back across the lake toward Camp Bay and Mineral Point. This area of the lake was soon dubbed the Kamloops Triangle. Unfortunately, the Talachi Lodge burned to the ground in the winter of 1962 and was never rebuilt. All that was left were the two native rock chimneys that stood until they were knocked down in the early 1990s. During its final season of operation, guests at Talachi Lodge caught 34 trophy fish weighing more than 10 pounds apiece. Harlan and Margaret Walker indeed had found pay dirt at the former mining site, but not from silver ore. It was the simple pleasure of going fishing. A poem by Robbins Napolitan of Sagal, Idaho. Talachi Beach. The pebble, no bigger than a marble, is one color underwater, another when dry and piled on shore with its kind. There it will be lost until, unless, a wave splashes it. Anecdota, Boat Building as a Family Tradition There's a photograph on the wall of the late Swede Heitman's workshop at Glengarry Bay Marina of him standing next to the last wooden boat he built, a sailing dinghy. It was taken sometime in the 1980s, and he's wearing that famously warm smile. His shop is a glimpse into the past. There are old boat props on the wall, 
even older pin-up calendars, the smell of aging lumber, and lots of old woodworking tools, some so unusual you wonder how in the world they might be used. Some of these tools he made himself. Just prior to Swede's death in 1995 at age 84, Marjorie Trulock, his daughter, and her husband Tom moved home to northern Idaho from where they had been living in Utah. Marjorie looks very much like her dad, the same welcoming eyes, sincere voice, and kind smile. The Trulocks took over the marina, dock restoration tasks, and cleaning out the shop. There's a spirited renaissance going on since Marjorie, her husband, and their two daughters have also taken on the work of restoring some of Swede's old boats crafted during the 50-plus years that he made Glengarry Bay home. Self-taught, Swede ultimately became a master boat builder, crafting amazing wooden boats as well as the commonplace. The Mary Marge was built in the 1940s for local dentist Mac McKinnon and named for the doctor's daughter and wife. The 30-foot husky design is an enormous boat out of the water and has an interior that Swede custom-built, wide and hefty, like the physique of Dr. McKinnon. Boats were different back then, Marjorie says. Dad crafted the entire boat, every part of it. It wasn't launched until 1954. <laughs> there were letters from Mac wondering when the boat was going to be done. I don't know what my father's response was, but he probably didn't speed up any. Well, that was Swede, too. He did things his own way in his own time. Of course, he also had a lot to deal with, keeping a marina operating and a family provided for, not to mention the many years he served on the Bonner County Planning and Zoning Commission. About 10 years after moving back, the Trulock family reacquired the Mary Marge. They have done extensive restoration work, especially on the mahogany and Alaskan cedar hull. Swede's close friend, and Glengarry Bay neighbor, Hal Hargraves, is helping the family with the tedious work. Swede taught Hal how to build and restore wooden boats. His first was a runabout, and the second, the White Raven, is the boat that Hal and his wife Ruth keep at Glengarry Bay Marina for use on the lake. It's very cool, says Marjorie. We need to put this boat back in the water and enjoy it as much as Dad would have wanted somebody to enjoy it. It's pretty interesting to be living in this place and to have his things around and be using his tools and shop. She remembers what the Mary Marge was like in the water. It's got a very distinctive sound. It rumbles along. The bow is really high, but it will move right out. Dad thought it was the easiest moving boat on the lake. We think it will be a nice, big, stable, all-weather boat. Another friend of Swede's, Liam Fitzgerald, also is helping out, but with the labor-intensive marina work. He worked for Swede for 15 summers many years ago, living in a little cabin Swede built on the edge of his property. I spent most of my time keeping the marina together so he could concentrate, at least some of the time, on building and repairing boats, Liam says, with a look that reminds me of Swede. 
There were certainly some of the best years of my life. Not only was he someone you could admire so much, he was a pleasure to be around. He was a great teacher, a great companion, and it was easy to come back here every year. Another of Swede's boats that is still in use on the lake is a hand-lining kokanee boat he built for Bill Zinter at Bottle Bay Marina in 1956. Ron Reha now owns the trustworthy vessel and uses it every year for hand-lining lake whitefish in the winter. The more commonplace boats Swede built were little runabouts. One of these is in the shop, a boat built in 1953 that the Trulock family got at an auction. Marjorie's oldest daughter, Piper, is doing the restoration. They call it the 53 Swede. He made billions of these, lots and lots and lots, says Marjorie. Inboards and outboards, all the same hull with different cabin configurations made with marine plywood and a fiberglass bottom. Swede loved his grandchildren, although they weren't around him much before his death. Still, Piper won't let anyone else work on her grandpa's boat. Glengarry Bay Marina has 50 boat slips and permits to replace some of the original breakwaters that Swede built. Swede bought the place in 1943. One of the buildings was the old post office and store from when Glengarry was one of the steamboat landings. He started operating the marina by the mid-1940s and built sheds and docks, breakwaters, with only levers, pulleys, and an old Ford tractor that he traded for a hundred feet of lake frontage. The marina needs constant attention. Nails pop out, boards rot, logs start to sink, and pilings break off. Marjorie and Tom work hard, but both have day jobs. They actually don't want it to be much different anyway. A lot of the people who have slips have old cabins nearby, and a few sailors and local fishermen more here as well. We really don't have many amenities out here, says Marjorie. We have an outhouse, one yard light, and we have a sign at the top that says private. People don't come down here. For boaters arriving by water, they typically only have slip moorage available in the winter, since they fill up fast in the summer. Of all the marinas on the lake, this one is unique. Not because very little has changed, but because the spirit of Sweet Heitman is still here, alive and well. And just like that photo hanging in his shop, you just know he's proudly grinning about it all. Sandpoint East to Bottle Bay. Overview. On any August weekend that is warm and sunny, the expanse of water below a cliffside viewpoint northwest towards Sandpoint from Bottle Bay Road becomes what you might call the Boater's Triangle. It's an area buzzing with the sound of jet boats, power boats with water skiers in tow, and personal watercraft. Bordered by the railroad trestle and Long Bridge to the west, Sandpoint City Beach directly across the way, and around Contest Point to the east towards Sourdough Point in Bottle Bay, this is undoubtedly one of the busiest parts of the lake. Anecdota, Sailing the Circle Not all the boating on Lake Pend is of the motorized variety. 
On most summer Saturday mornings, members of the Sandpoint Sailing Association will be racing towards Contest Point from the Windbag Marina next to Sandpoint City Beach. Sailboats of various sizes will catch the wind, sails billowing as they quietly tack and traverse towards the Gold Hill shoreline, then lean towards Bottle Bay around Contest Point and circle back again toward Kootenay Bay for the return to Sand Point, about two miles due west. Contest Point is the northernmost point of the lake's southern shoreline. A fleet of nine boats sailing past a high cliff viewpoint off Bottle Bay Road creates a serene and natural scene, like a flock of doves soaring through a sky of blue. A spectator will get a totally different perspective on sailing from the shoreline near City Beach, one that captures the excitement of a race about to begin. On most Thursday evenings in summer, the Sandpoint Sailing Association holds short course races off the end of the breakwater near the Windbag Marina. Out on the lake are large orange inflatable buoys that mark the circular course. By 6 p.m., a couple dozen skippers have readied their boats and crews. A northeasterly wind is blowing and few powerboats are on the water. According to Terry Jensen, this August evening portends a pleasant race. As the race's timekeeper, his black 34-foot sailboat is the first one to leave the marina for open water. One by one, the other sailors exit the harbor and capture the wind that will put their boats into racing mode. While not as picturesque as the view from the cliff, it is as exhilarating. The Spud Cup over Labor Day weekend is the group's biggest race event for the season. It draws sailors from throughout the region and hosts two days' worth of short course races in various boat classes. It is a wondrous sight to behold 40 to 50 sailboats on the lake from any viewpoint. But the club isn't only about racing, Terry says. There are barbecues and overnight outings and great camaraderie. He says the group was formed to unite those who have a common love for sailing and to introduce other people to the sport, a mission that first began with the Ponderé Yacht Club back in the 1970s. Jensen, an attorney in Sandpoint, began sailing in the late 1970s when Keith Sheckler, then owner of the windbag, took him out for his first lesson on Lake Ponderé. Since then, he has owned three different boats and spent a good deal of time sailing among the Northwest Coastal San Juan Islands and Canadian Gulf Islands. In 1992, he was part of a three-person crew that sailed across the Atlantic Ocean from Maryland to Portugal. Terry says that sailing Lake Ponderé is similar to sailing the Northwest Coast, but here the water is warmer and strong currents and tides aren't issues. The forested mountain scenery is just as pretty, and crossing long stretches of open water is thrilling. Going five miles per hour in a sailboat is a whole lot more exciting than going 40 miles per hour in a powerboat, he says. But he's also been caught in storms that have blown his sails out, with sudden 50 to 60 mile per hour gale winds that come over a mountaintop catching him unaware. 
Terry tries to get his boat on the lake at least twice a week during the eight-month sailing calendar from March into November, well past the racing season. So much time on the water has afforded him some wonderful memories. One late spring morning, after an overnight stay on his boat near Hawkins Point, he awoke to a hundred chickadee-like birds making the boat their home, poking their heads inside, chattering away on the rigging, pattering across the deck. Then there was the clear and cold, ten degrees, early November day with the wind out of the north at twenty-five miles per hour, sailing from Sandpoint to Glengarry Bay, where the spray from the lake instantly froze, encrusting the entire boat in clear ice. Some people actually do sail Lake Ponderay in winter, he says. But during those months, Terry Jensen would rather be up at Schweitzer, skiing. Jane Fritz has been reading from her book, Legendary Lake Ponderay, Idaho's Wilderness of Water, published in 2010 by Keoki Books of Sandpoint, Idaho. The Bookshelf is a production of Spokane Public Radio. With Vern Wyndham, I'm co-producer Nancy Roth.